0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Contempt is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. Anger algorithmically leads to reconciliation. Contempt leads to permanent enmity. (laughs)
2: Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the podcast network of MediaVox. I am your host, Ezra Klein. Uh, Let's do a bit of housekeeping here. It's been a while since we did an Ask Me Anything episode, so let's do an Ask Me Anything episode. Email me your questions or better yet, this is an audio medium, record a voice memo and send it to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, that is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. I have made the mistake before of keeping this open too long and getting so overwhelmed by the number of responses that I never ended up doing the AMA at all. So I am only going to look at questions submitted in the next week or so. So if you have anything, literally anything to ask me, send it by text or better yet by voice memo to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Thing the second, our Netflix show Explained has had a couple of killer episodes lately. There's one on the search for alien life that I really, really love. Uh, It begins by flipping the question we usually ask. It's not, can we find alien life? But why the hell haven't we? In a universe, a world this big, with so many planets like Earth orbiting stars like our sun, where the hell is everyone? And what does it mean if we can't find them? What does it mean for our society? Does it mean something is coming? that is going to make it the case that the next intelligence society can't find us because we're no longer here. It's an unusually beautiful and mind-expanding episode. I think if you like this show, you'll really love it. It's got just also amazing, amazing visuals and amazing math in it. And it's narrated by LeVar Burton. LeVar Burton! So come on. You got to watch that. We also just released an episode on the exclamation mark and how punctuation changes across different mediums and eras. One of the things that I I never knew here was how gendered the usage of the exclamation mark is, how it has fallen in and out of favor in society alongside the way our society treats female-coded communication and treats women in power. So if you're a language nerd and you're someone who likes thinking about how culture and technology And power relations shape communication. You will love it. Again, the show is Explained on Netflix. You can go to Netflix, search Explained, search Vox. If you're not watching it, you're really missing out. And that brings me to today's show with Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute. AI is Washington's most respected and influential conservative think tank. And Brooks is leaving it after 10 years And launching some pretty interesting new projects. Uh, One is with Vox Media. He's launching The Arthur Brooks Show, which is a new podcast on how to disagree better, how to have arguments that are actually productive. But this podcast, this conversation today is really about two things. The first is management, which, as you'll hear, Arthur and I have had a very long-running conversation about, and and you'll hear us continuing that conversation here as I explore why he's leaving, why I left management about eight months ago now. It's a bit of a more personal conversation, but I think it's a a fun one to have and and hopefully one that people will find some value in. But the, the bigger conversation, the second one we're having, is about disagreement, at least within the American political context. Arthur and I disagree on a lot. We disagree on almost everything, but he's also one of my favorite people to talk to. Uh, And that's part because he is really, really good at disagreeing. He's even really good at disagreeing when like the disagreement gets hot. And the distinction he draws in this discussion between disagreeing with anger and disagreeing with contempt, which is really a distinction about whether you want to convince the person you're talking to, whether you care enough to convince them or you want to convince yourself that you actually don't need to talk to them. I think it's a profound one, particularly in this political environment. so I, I really would urge people to think about that as we're talking about it and to reflect in it on their own lives i I very much have been after this conversation. So all that said, it is with great, great pleasure I present this discussion on the art and the practice of disagreement with Arthur Brooks, Arthur Brooks, welcome. I don't know if I should say welcome to the podcast or welcome back.
1: Well, thank you, Ezra. It's great to be with you.
2: So some listeners won't know this, but when I was piloting the Ezra Klein show in the weeds, before there was even an Ezra Klein show, Arthur was my – first or second uh, trial. And that was such a great interview that it convinced me to actually do
1: this show. So you have a, a real space in the genesis of, of of this whole project. Oh, that's great. I'm so happy to hear that. And it's going well. Congratulations, by the way. Everybody listens to this podcast.
2: Thank you, everybody. It's, everybody. it's the law. Um, <laughs> I actually wanted to start with something. From our earlier conversation yeah. because it's partially a moment of gratitude to you, but also it's something I've wanted to revisit with you. So you gave me a concept in that podcast hmm, that, that ended up being very influential for me, which is the idea of rising above your level of misery. So you had told me then that something that will happen to folks um, in their jobs is that they keep sort of promoting up if they're doing well until eventually they get above what they like doing right? and then they get trapped there because – the status hit of going back down right. is too much for people to take. Right, And I thought about that a lot over the next couple of years as I began to realize that I did not like managing as many people as managing Vox's growth would ultimately require me to do, but also felt the pull of, well, do you really not want to be editor-in-chief anymore? And
1: right. it was a very useful concept for me to have to give language to that transition. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm glad to hear it, Ezra. And congratulations on doing that. I really admired it a lot. And maybe your listeners don't know that I quit my job too.
2: So this is what I was going to ask you. Right. So, did you rise above your level of misery?
1: Yeah. So, when we talked about this last time, here's the basic framework because I, I don't think everybody's going to go back and listen to that early beta of the weeds <clears throat> for this. But basically, here's how it goes People have a tendency, as, as you just stated, to, when they're competent and they're hardworking and they're ambitious, to get promoted and to to rise and to become more and more successful. But that success doesn't really have necessarily anything to do with your passion or your happiness. Most people have a pretty good concept of what floats their boat and that's what they're doing. And they're doing it so well that people who are around them say, well, it'd be great if you took more responsibility. It would be good if you did more management. But that's not ideal for everybody. On the con on the contrary, somebody like you, Ezra, you're you're inherently, you're a creative you've been a creative guy from the beginning of your career. We've, over the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of stuff going on and all the things that people know and admire are about you the most and know about you from the outside are your creative works. So that would indicate to me, if I were your therapist, I would say, Esri, And sometimes you are. <laughs> that, that, that basically your true north is being a creative voice, is writing your books, is writing your articles, is doing your podcast, is thinking about ideas. Now, There's a simulacrum for this stuff, and that is the money, the power. The fame that comes along from, you know, being more in management and running something bigger. But the problem is that's a substitute for what you really want. It's a substitute for Ezra. It's a counterfeit Ezra. And that's really what we're talking about here. You have to remember what your true north is and don't take the counterfeit substitutes for it, notwithstanding the rewards that come along with them. But what I want to hear is about how
2: this played into and if it played into the transitions you're making. Because One of the things that's always been interesting tension in, in your career is that you're also a creative. You write books. You were an economist before you uh, ascended to the head of AI. You said you're, a creative and economist. I'm not sure those two things <laughs> are <laughs> Yeah, and you're currently – we were just talking before we started about what you're doing. You've got a podcast launching on, on Vox Media. You've got a book coming out on the second half of life, a huge story coming out on the second half of life, and you've got a movie coming out. Yeah.
1: So was this the – was this the – journey you went through in yourself too. So, yeah, what, what happened was for those, your listeners that I'm not going to assume everybody's following my career. I've been the president of AEI for 10 years now. Before that, I was a professor at Syracuse University, most of that. Uh, and it, it was a completely creative lifestyle. I was writing my books and my and you articles. you were not managing anybody. I was managing not even myself. I was, <laughs> <laughs> and, and how many people work at AEI? Uh, 280 full-time. And so it's big. And and by the way, we've doubled in size over the past 10 years. And before that, I spent the 12 years before that as a professional French horn player, a lot of that with the Barcelona Symphony Orchestra. So... I've had a largely creative career and it went into this sort of chief executive job when I'd had no management responsibility whatsoever. It was a real shock. It seems very irresponsible on the part of AI. Oh, yeah. No, no. It was, a, it was clearly a failed president search on their part. And it was a you know, panic. And, and the best attribute I had in the first couple of years as president of AEI was my own desperation, <laughs> my own just will to succeed. And the truth was I knew that there was a possibility it wouldn't work and I'd get fired and I would be fine. And that was actually comforting to me in this way. But the key thing to remember for me was that I had made a 10-year commitment going in. I was going to do this in a way where I was going to instantiate a particular vision – The vision was going to be to make a moral case for how the American free enterprise system could help people around the world, particularly people at the margins of our society and how American leadership should be a good thing when bounded by rules of the road and basic morals. And AEI was the best place to do. It was my favorite think tank. And I was going to build that particular vision, do it in a really, really creative way and get out of Dodge. That was a goal that I had was to do it for 10 years and when I got close to 10, it was a little kind of a panicky feeling quite frankly because the life is great. I mean I was – I actually kind of had mastered the job. I, I wasn't having crises. I wasn't having problems. The place was running, not itself but it was running pretty well. I remembered that. I remembered that there's a tyranny of this S curve. It's hard to get started and once you can get this really steep gradient, then you get to the top of that thing if you sit up there – you're not going to be making very much progress. And sooner or later, you're going to get a shove. Why? Because when you say, oh, I'll leave, as, I'll leave as soon as I'm not having fun anymore, you've said this institution exists to serve me. That's what you just said. And sooner or later, the sheriff is going to show up. And I didn't want that. It's not good for AEI. It's not good for me. And so I was true to my word. And I stepped, I said I was going to step down. That happens a year from now.
2: What did you, I recognize this is a big question. What did management teach you? What do you know about yourself now that you didn't know before? The key,
1: yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think about that a lot. The most important management task is learning how to manage yourself. That You can't manage other people unless you're managing yourself. You can't help other people with their to control their emotions such that they can be really productive, such that they can work together in teams, such that they can be maximally fulfilled and creative unless you're doing that for yourself. And so the first management task is – self-management, is to be a leader to yourself. And it sounds like a sort of self-improvement book, but it's probably not that much more than common sense. So you've got to ask yourself, am, am I doing what I should be doing today? Am I using my, my time appropriately? Am I being as productive as I could be? Am I working such that I'm not unhappy because unhappiness on the part of the leader just bleeds over like crazy and everybody recognizes it. I, that one of the things that I missed that, that was
2: a big learning for me. Oh,
1: for sure. You know, people are looking, at, you know, what, you know, Ezra is in a bad mood today. What happened? It wasn't me. You know, how can we make him happy? It was probably them. It was probably It was probably it was them. Probably them. And the other thing to keep in <laughs> mind is that most people in creative leadership jobs are are fundamentally melancholic people. That's just that's a Wait, that's, that that I'm is, not sure that
2: sounds right to me. Oh is no. It, is yeah. there
1: actual data on yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. I've actually seen this. So creatives tend to have a not a completely melancholic spirit, but certainly a melancholic streak. And and so those that are elevated into these management jobs frequently are the ones who have this strong strain of melancholy. And not being able to control that, to manage that in yourself, becomes a real liability for a manager, becomes a real liability for a leader. And so that's an important thing. The self-knowledge, the self-management was the most important skill I learned. Are you melancholic? Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Of course. I mean, it's a I mean, it's not dominating my personality in every single moment, but for sure, I'm very dark. Yeah. So
2: as someone who got put into this position from a pure creative background. Yeah. Then when you looked for deputies, did you look for people with management experience or did you look for others like you who had a hunger and had a vision and assumed you could teach them or they would learn management?
1: Uh, You have to put together a team that has the right elements on it. So a management team, the span of control of the chief executive is eight or nine people seven, eight or nine people, something like that, not much more than that. and they have to be a blend. They have to be a, have different characteristics. Now the the top management of any organization has to basically have two two people at least doing four jobs. Here are the four jobs vision, resources, execution, and accountability. And the chief executive job, Really, 85%, 95% should be vision and resources. The biggest problem inside organizations, the thing that wrecks organizations, is that everybody's competing to be the chief operating officer. Everybody wants to be the executor, the guy who checks the lists, the guy who makes things work right. Why? Because vision and resources, that's, that's really hard. It's easy to fail. You know, that where are we going? Do you see it? Do you see something bigger, more moral, something better, something that's going to improve our lives? And here's what we need to get it. Brains, money, and relationships. And I'm going to go out and get them and bring them back in a bag. That's what the chief executive job really, really is. And so what you need is people surrounding you doing the other jobs. And you have to – by the way, here's the big mistake that a lot of new executives make, new leaders make, is they keep trying to do their old job. (laughs) Well, that
2: that was – that's me. I always that's did that. <laughs> Ezra, that's all of
1: us. That's all of us. Like, right, you oh, were still I think, writing economics totally. books. That, was that's writing. the hard thing about yeah, that. Yeah, I was writing my it's, column for the New York Times. I mean, that was because it just gave me an outlet, right? It's one reason. It's something that I feel, and this is a journalism-specific
2: point, but that I've come to believe strongly is that you want editors who truly want to be editors. You want managers who truly want to be managers. I think one of the things I began to see in myself is that up to a certain level of size for Vox, I could manage a lot through the product. Fundamentally, the tools of management for me were working through assigning stories and editing stories and having ideas with people. And it looked a lot more like my old jobs. When it gets big enough, you're really the, – the fundamental building blocks of the organization are people. You're managing – and at a certain point, you're managing managers, right. sometimes even of managers. Sure. And so then you're working with people problems, people's talents, people's opportunities. And that is itself a very deep skill. And there are people who get out of bed, like our current leadership group, who really, really think about that as a core thing. That's been what they've been doing for a very long time. And so when they become editors-in-chief or whatever, they keep doing that. But I always think that one of the things I now tell people who come to me for advice on this is that you have to be honest with yourself about whether or not you like working with the, the actual tasks you're doing right. or whether or not you're trying to do your
1: old job in a new and bigger role. Yeah, the number one reason for the demise of a CEO is not that he or she isn't a good CEO, but that he or she doesn't want to be the CEO. That's the number one reason for the demise of the leader. And the reason for that is there's a truism that people always do what they want to do. Early on when I was running AI, yeah, I would say, I, I'm, a, I'm a good, I got a good eye for talent. I'll find people who are good at something and they don't even know it yet. And, you know, I'm pretty astute sometimes and, and I would be able to do that. The trouble is, It failed and it failed inevitably because I would hire people to do something they didn't want to do and they would do it for a month or two and then pretty soon they would wind up doing what they wanted to do. Now, that's the same thing is true about you and me, Ezra. At the end of the day, you wanted to be a creator. You're an idea man. That's what you are. And, and so when you were basically three steps removed from the production and the distribution of ideas, it was very frustrating, notwithstanding the fact that you were really successful at it. Being successful at it, once again, while you don't like it, is pursuing those substitutes for yourself, money, power, fame. Those are always a mistake. Let me ask you about not the
2: intrinsic part of this but the external part of it. Mm.
1: So I've developed a
2: perhaps wrong hypothesis watching your transition from afar. Which is I am seeing a lot of people and I see it in myself too whose careers have been spent in policy and persuasion, whose careers have been about the idea that the way American politics works or at least one of the ways American politics works is you come up with good information and good ideas about policy. You persuade people those ideas are correct and then those ideas go forward and they make the world a better place as they're – Made into policy as are implemented as are made into law. I'm seeing a lot of folks right now, and and again, and I feel this way myself, who are looking around at American politics and saying, "That's not how it's working. That is not what the transmission looks like. Um, people are not open to persuasion in that way. We've sort of fallen down. What I joke of uh, about as Maslow's hierarchy of political needs down from you know is this a good policy? To were there good people on both sides of the Charlottesville rallies, and that. I see a lot of policy people trying to now deepen their engagement with questions of how we talk to one another, how American politics and disagreement and culture work. Was there for you a sense that the core problem had changed and that you needed to Revive yourself or focus on something different for a while.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think I came into certainly. I, I mean, I have a PhD in policy analysis, and so my my view was that you you expose ideas to empirical scrutiny, and when the when the data support a particular hypothesis enough, you become kind of convinced of it, although not dogmatically so. And then you try to convince policymakers is the best policy, and then a thousand flowers bloom. Exactly, you know that that's the algorithm of how policy is supposed to work. The, the, the trouble is that 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 only works some of the time, you can get into periods of tremendous polarization, political polarization and – so, so let me back up with a different metaphor. Ordinarily, ideas are like the climate and politics is like the weather, OK? And, and climate drives weather, so, ideas kind of drive politics when things are going well. Well, it turns out that when weather's really, really heavy, you can get you can turn the directionality the to one hundred and eighty degrees you can and and when things get really hot and heavy, you can basically have effectively weather driving the climate and that's what happens in a highly polarized ideological environment where politics starts to drive ideas and and what happens is that you you get into an environment where where it's like You're on one side or the other. You just don't have very many persuadable people uh, under those circumstances. And then the prerogative becomes not just better ideas but better culture. That's fine. I mean we should be in the business not just of good ideas but of improving culture as well because that democracy is not just a bundle of ideas. It's a bundle of ideas where the connective tissue is the culture between them.
2: So let me go back to this metaphor because I think there's something here but I want to make sure I understand it. So to make it specific, when you say that ideas are the climate and policies are the weather. No, politics is politics the weather. Politics is weather, yeah. I'm sorry. So you have something like neoliberalism is a climate, right? There's a, a period of time in which there is a a broad and and I mean this in the sort of bigger kind of Western way, neoliberal consensus mm-hmm. or classical liberalism is a climate. And that within that, a lot of politics takes place within those boundaries. What do you mean when you say that it then reverses? Because I feel like you could make the argument that actually we are just looking at different ideas or ideas about demographics or ideas about who should be in this country and who counts as an American and 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 how much demographic change we should have. But they are still ideas. And if they just drive a different kind of politics, well, it's not a reversal. That's just you know, you, you, or I, or whoever has lost control of the climate.
1: Well, I think the ideas per se are part of the climate, and so big ideas, little ideas, they all go together. Politics is a different thing. Politics is the relationship of power between particular people, you know, who gets to make decisions, who has uh, the, the capacity to redistrict everything. It's just basically politics is how power is structured. Whereas ideas, typically, guys like you and me who are in the idea world, we have very little power, except insofar as that we can exert some moral suasion, or we can persuade people in different ways. So, I think so it's just very little power. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's actually amazing, because in the end, climate usually does win out. Ideas do win out. But in the short term, politics, the weather, it can be much more interesting. I mean, look, climate doesn't blow down your house. Weather does. So ideas are not suddenly going to you know rock your world, change everything. It's going to be politics that does that. It's going to be the power relationships. And the polarities are such right now, to mix my metaphors, that politics, that, that weather is super heavy. I mean we're basically going through a pattern where it's like hurricane or tornado after tornado after tornado. And under those circumstances, you have to say, OK, what are the circumstances in which I can change that? And one of the ways to do that is – to to talk about the culture in which the politics exists and that's why I've I've changed the focus of a lot of my personal activity.
3: Support for this podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need constant contact. <laughs> Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
2: So here's a question about this. Obviously, as people who decided at one point or another to devote a lot of our lives to this question of what are the dominant ideas, what, what are the ideas people are listening to, what, what, what ideas should they be listening to, what should get more attention than it does, what should get more analysis than it does, we are going to be inclined to state highly uh, the, the, the power of ideas in, in politics and also just in life, right, where, where people have chosen to work a lot with ideas. But the, the place where I am struggling here, not necessarily because I disagree but because I'm not sure I, I have a view, is – well, was it ever really like that? Now on some level, ideas have always mattered. There, there are clearly boundaries on the, the political conversation. America has certain ideas like individualism that, that take specific root here compared to, to how they do in, in other countries. But you know, another way of thinking about that is that America has group identities and America has structures that make certain ideas take root here. And so I'm curious how you think about that interplay. Is there a larger context in which things happen? Why do some periods have – more of a role for, as you put it, the climate than others. I mean what is the – like if you're able
1: to take one step back further out from your metaphor, what is the context in which all that operates? So. I often ask myself this too, because you know I hear people that are pining for the past, the good old days. Well, you know, you go back a hundred years, and it was—I mean—the polarization was unbelievable. You go back 150 years, there's was a civil war, and the, basically the whole 19th century. And you go century. back
2: 60 years, and there was political assassinations yeah. and urban riots. Exactly and- right.
1: I was having a, a very interesting conversation with Ken Burns, who's a great filmmaker, and 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 he was—you know—I was—we were on the phone, and I was kind of complaining, you know, the polarization right now is so bad. and – and he laughs and he says, do you know how many domestic bombings took place in 68 and 69? I said, I don't know. He said, 700. Think about that. I mean, the last domestic bombing in the United States was it like that one in New Jersey. I don't – did it go off? I don't remember. I mean, it's just it's, – that, that's bad, man. I mean, and, and so th- th- the perspective is really important. So sometimes I wonder the same thing that you do. Maybe it, it never was thus. Maybe – or maybe the punctuation to the equilibrium is actually when ideas do matter and most of the time ideas don't matter. I don't know. The answer is I don't know. But I do know that I think even if it's a punctuation to equilibrium when ideas matter, then we need to work to get those punctuations more frequent and longer. That That's good for the United States because it also means that we can share ideas. We can persuade each other. We can actually have a, a common sense of solidarity and, and, and progress and what we're trying to do together even if we don't agree. So there there, there seem to me to be a couple
2: interesting things here. One is there is – the institutional context in which ideas can become action. Uh, there are periods in American life, due to how majorities are structured, um, you know, punctuated equilibrium, as the political scientists like to say, where it's easier for an idea to move into policy. Right. Then there is also this other thing, which I think you're getting at a little bit here by, but by, by invoking some of our more unsettled past, which is, what are the periods in which we? have enough in some versions consensus, in other versions political pressure to make big changes to to ideas. Because when I look back at American politics, I feel like you can actually often separate it into two kinds of periods that recur again and again. There are periods of relative consensus. So let's say the 90s in America. That was a place where the lines were drawn pretty narrowly. And so while there was a lot of back and forth and disagreement and there was a, the Clinton impeachment, nevertheless, Democrats and Republicans were actually getting a lot of things done together. Um, you know, you may or may not look back on those things fondly, but, but it was happening. Right. And then there are periods like, say, the 60s when organized movements are – confronting America with major problems, often doing so in ways that require immense personal sacrifice and danger, and it's forcing changes to the idea um, structure, not through consensus but through challenge. Right, and I'm very – I do not have any organizing theory for what makes a period one versus the other. But it does seem to me that that there's an interesting
1: question there. Yeah, for sure. So generally speaking, the, the periods where you can get progress through consensus in the world of ideas, they they have two things – one of two things in common. <laughs> Number one is that there's this huge external threat. So big – war, right? I mean the whole idea – an existential crisis. That, that really drives people together in very interesting and sometimes very productive ways. That's not ideal. That's not what you want. It's like – Gee, if we had only had a war, all would be well. That's ridiculous. But that does tend to – that you did tend to see that. I mean lots of interesting things happen during conflict. Clinical depression – diagnosed falls by 75% during armed conflict. Weird stuff like that, right? War is but it's a force that gives us meaning. In Indeed. But there's another set of circumstances, and this is the one that, that we should be looking for as far as I'm concerned, which is that when you have symmetric economic growth, that is to say, all the way through the income distribution, you have – people rising in their experience of income growth, of of economic growth, then you see a lot more consensus because there's not a zero-sum mentality. It's not because Ezra has got a new podcast. It means Arthur doesn't have a new podcast. We could both have a new podcast. I mean the whole idea of a positive sum, that's a cultural context. That's not just an economic fact. A positive sum kind of thinking, an abundance kind of thinking – really only comes out of the ecosystem of even – relatively even economic growth. Now, why do I bring that up? Because that's, as far as I'm concerned, from a policy perspective, something we should be trying to achieve. And that's what I want liberals and conservatives to be yelling at each other about is how we can get more of this everybody's an asset and nobody's a liability kind of mentality. And how do we push economic growth all the way down through the economic distribution and you know, conservatives are going to be talking about higher economic growth rates and lower regulation and all that kind of stuff. And and liberals are going to be talking about jobs programs and 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 you know, big public work stuff. But that's the kind of argument I think that we should be having, such that we can create that ecosystem in which we can be promoting ideas.
2: I, I've been thinking a bit about this idea because I often see a version of this argument done, which is that what it's doing is pushing periods of economic growth, periods of perceptual abundance and suggesting that that the absence of that in recent years is the cause of fractiousness, right? Because we had a very, very terrible recession starting in 2009. Now we're here with Donald Trump with this kind of society where it feels like people are, are at war with the left becoming – you know, left are in a real sort of democratic socialist dimension emerging in American politics. Depending on who you talk to, they have different versions of why. Things are conflict-ridden as opposed to, to, to an interesting progress of ideas. But but a lot of people seem to agree that it's economic growth. But then I look at mid-century America. I look at post-World War II America. And this is a period in America that I think is broadly believed to be our great growth story. And it's a very fractious period. It's a period, as you say, where we have this huge number of domestic bombings. It's a period where we have the civil rights movement and the, the feminist movement and we – I've been struggling with this idea of whether or not abundance actually makes societies calmer or whether it can make them just more open or more generous in the face of challenge. Because I think a lot of people think if we had growth, we'd stop fighting. But that doesn't
1: seem to me to be the lesson of 20th century America. That's true. I actually think that fighting isn't the problem. (laughs) The the problem is the inability to ever let somebody else win, to ever be even – the slightest degree persuaded by anybody else. See, the problem is not fighting per se. It's polarization, which is different. So the problem is not disagreement. It's the inability to disagree well with each other. Um, I'm married to a a Spanish woman, right? And we're completely in love. We've been married almost 30 years and we fight every single day. There's a huge literature out there that shows that anger is not correlated with divorce, it is really no. It's not anger. Is not co- thank God because I'd be divorced. It's uh, you know. It's 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 not what's what's correlated with the divorce is contempt. Contempt is cold. It's the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. So when you find our inability to disagree well, you don't find lots of f- anger. You find lots of contempt and, and that's the, the period of polarization. That's where we find ourselves now in the United States. Now, to get back to just – a, and, and you're, I know you're going to follow up on this, right? Because contempt versus anger is super interesting and super important for our political climate today. But let's talk just for a second. Let me be a little wonkier here about this. So if we go back to 2009, financial crisis, very different than an ordinary recession, You get a couple of them a century. We have a very – there's a very interesting study that came out at the beginning of 2017, the European Economic Review, a fancy economics journal. Um, So it's technical. So most people are not going to be reading that journal. But basically here's what it found. It looked at 800 elections over 120 years in 20 advanced economies including the United States and they found that a 10-year period following a financial markets recession, you tended to see a 30% increase in support for populist parties and candidates. Populism tends to be polarizing and the climate around it politically tends to be characterized by contempt. There's nothing wrong with people fighting each other just vigorously in social movements and no, you're wrong. But contempt is terrible. When you say it's my way or the highway, you know, if you don't agree with me, get out. You're an idiot. Contempt Contempt is the conviction. This This is Schopenhauer's famous definition from the 19th century. It's the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. Anger algorithmically leads to reconciliation. Contempt leads to permanent enmity. And when you think about it, I mean, everybody listening to us. When people, they they owe you some amount of respect and civility, whether it's in the workplace or it's in your family or just in your community, and they treat you as if you're utterly worthless, stupid, what you've said is idiotic, you never quite forget it. You never quite – and it becomes a habit. And in these particular climates, you find that politically we get into the habit of treating other people with contempt. Contempt brings power when you're trying to lock down your base. And that leads to this power struggle where it's all or nothing. It becomes kind of a Hobbesian world of politics. That's very different. There's nothing wrong with conflict. But there's everything wrong with contempt.
2: So I'm trying to think this through because there's a lot here. One thing that's striking in me is something I've always noticed as a journalist and and also as a human being. I really like what you just said, that anger algorithmically leads to reconciliation because something I have always been very struck by is how many of my reporting relationships came out of somebody being angry about a piece I wrote, how many in in my own life, just in things I've observed and, and things I've been in, people getting angry at each other often seems to be an opening for them to transfer those strong feelings to a more calm place, that people are more likely to develop a friendship even if they begin in anger than if they just begin with nothing. Yeah. That strong feelings can be moved around. Anger says, I care. Right. Anger says, I care. Contempt says, you're worthless. Contempt says, um, it's interesting. So, And then there's this question though of how do you know when you have one versus another in politics? Because anger in politics often expresses itself as contempt. And this is where I'm getting a little caught up, which is this – you're creating a pretty sharp division here. Mm -hmm. But when people get angry, they get contemptuous. And so I think part of the question is how does one not tip into the other? Yeah. Right? So, right. Contempt Contempt is possibly – when you say anger algorithmically
1: leads to reconciliation, I think algor- anger can lead to contempt. It can harden. So that's a, – it's a it's a very good point that you're making. And the problem is how you express your anger. And that tends the to – problem is how you express your anger. <laughs> Sorry. Man. <laughs> <laughs> and that's healthy anger that you're expressing right now. The key the, – look, the key interesting thing is that how – There's a guy, uh, he's the world's leading expert on contempt and actually marital reconciliation. His name is John Gottman. He teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle. He's a social psychologist. He has a marriage lab with his wife. And they've they've brought thousands of couples back together who are on their way to divorce court. This guy's a hero. I mean he just helps people be happier and live better lives. And the number one thing he's looking for is eye-rolling when a couple is having a contentious conversation, he can look at a video of a couple having an argument, turn the sound to zero and within seconds tell with that couple will be divorced within the next five years with like 94% accuracy. It's, it's uncanny because he looks at the the physical uh, signs of contempt that they express for each other. So, so here's the key problem. He finds that people have a habit of expressing contempt. And that's almost like a physical assault on the other person. When I say that, I'd, it's because there are a lot of studies that show that when you're treated with contempt, you react in a way almost as if you've been hit. It's, it's just so terrible when somebody treats you with contempt. So the first thing that he's trying to do such that anger doesn't lead to an expression of contempt is to have people break their habits of contempt. So the number one thing that we need to do, everybody listening to us to do today, is to break the habit of contempt to catch yourself when you're about to express contempt rolling your eyes, mockery, sarcasm. Look, there's a ton of millennials listening to us today. And and everybody my age and younger is the sarcasm generation. So so don't do that, particularly with people you don't know, particularly on social media. OK, n- now you're going to ask so wait, how, right? No, I was going to ask something different, which is I want, I want to – if this is the advice for,
2: you're, you're giving people, I want to make sure the advice is clear. So here's what I'm hearing when you say that, that if I'm on Twitter – or I'm talking to somebody, that there's a difference between me seeing something that I don't like and saying, I don't like that. I'm going to disagree with this person, and me seeing something that I don't like and saying, this person's an asshole. They're not worth me disagreeing with. Correct. Is that the dividing line? The dividing line is about whether or not somebody for you is worth engaging with versus not worth engaging with. (laughs) Well,
1: Not worth engaging with means you don't engage at all, which means you don't write anything on Twitter. Contempt, that's usually the best advice? Well, it, it you know, in it, all it kind, of <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. It kind of. I mean, you and I actually had a conversation once about Twitter, where you talked about the anxiety that actually created in your life. Yeah, and and me too. I mean, you're, you've got a billion Twitter followers, and I've only got you know like nine. But the, still, it's the same. It's the same thing where. And part of it is because you feel a, a need to react to something that you don't think is correct. Okay, so there are basically three. You see something that you think is is wrong, on Twitter, and we do it all day long because we're you know we're looking at it probably more than we should. Number one is don't react. Number two is to react by saying I disagree with that completely, and here's why. And number three to say is what an idiot you're an idiot, what a moron, jackass. Come on, you know get your facts straight before you get on Twitter. Okay. Number one is not engaging. Number two is. Maybe anger, maybe not, but it's healthy and it's respectful. Number two
2: is a kind of disagreement, it's, whatever it's, the
1: emotional charge, which is fine. I mean, disagreement is a form of competition, right. and We're competition get is good. So, okay. And number three is contempt. Don't ever do contempt. Now, now, the problem is – And again, number three is fuck this person. They're not worth me responding. They're not – well, or (laughs) – except that you are responding, which means it's just the F you part and not that it's not worth you responding. It's basically you're an idiot. Ha, ha, ha. That's the classical kind of response of contempt on social media, right? So – and that's just – Twitter is a contempt machine. That's the biggest problem with Twitter and not to mention the fact that it's anonymous. So contempt is that much easier to express, for people. The problem is, however, that a lot of people who are listening to us, and it can happen to, to people in leadership positions as well, is they're in the habit of expressing their feelings that way, even when they don't feel contempt. That's how they actually get followers. That's how they get fans. That's how they get attention is by expressing contempt. And it's extremely deleterious to the conversation. Well, this is
2: interesting. So you were saying a minute ago that, that folks below you are the sarcasm generation right and and I would call it snark mm. snark is the dominant mode in a lot of these spaces right and it sounds to me like what you're saying is that a lot of us are in practicing our snark in you know being out there with it a lot of us are developing habits of mind that whether or not we quite intend to do so and habits of expression that lead us more easily down the path to contempt.
1: That is correct. And the the result of it is knowingly or unknowingly twofold. Number one, it alienates other people and thus forecloses the ability to have disagreement that can be constructive. And number two, it hurts you. I don't want to put this all on social media because obviously this operates
2: in a lot of other parts of our lives. But it always strikes me that you can really tell when somebody is disagreeing with you with the expectation that you are going to see it. Versus somebody's disagreeing with you or attacking you or, or or whatever they may be doing with the expectation that their group is going to see it. Right. Right. When somebody is coming at you expecting a response, there's one kind of writing, one kind of communication. And when you are, I should say even when I am, when I am disagreeing with somebody for my Twitter followers, not for them, right? Right. So-and-so has written something. I think it's really dumb and I'm going to make a joke about it that I think my people are going to find funny. It's not the opening of a conversation with the person I am attacking. Right. That's a place where I find myself tipping much more into contempt-driven For sure. For, uh, I mean ordinary disagreement.
1: Civil disagreement is one uh, where you actually want – the other person to hear you, and you want the other person to respond. Uncivil disagreement, which is contempt-based, is one in which you're playing to your own audience. It's, it's you know, it's like one of these late-night TV shows where the host is always barbecuing the guest, if the guest is, has the wrong politics or whatever, for the benefit of the people who are out in the seats. If you're doing your Twitter that way, you're not doing it very constructively. It's basically a kind of divisive, negative entertainment, which, by the way, is horrible for the entertainer. It's bad for you. It's bad for you emotionally. It's even bad for you physically to be expressing contempt. I uh, was talking with somebody the other day about the
2: difference between the old blogosphere, which I came up in. That's sort of how I got into journalism. <laughs> it's like old. It's like – I know. It's 2005. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's real strange how, how quickly these things have moved. But how different it felt, how different disagreement, which was often very uncivil there, felt – from disagreement in a lot of social media spaces. And and the reason I think it felt different was that there was an expectation that you were going to go back and forth with the people you were disagreeing with. It was a link-based economy. So they were going to link to you. You were going to link to them. You know, there was a a habit back then called fisking, which is a long story of how it got that name. But basically- I I remember that. I know that. I know that. It was a thing where you take a paragraph and then like you'd rip that paragraph to shreds and then another paragraph and you'd rip that one to shreds. But it was also a very deep kind of engagement with right. whatever you were attacking, right? It wasn't like you just like had a little link that probably people wouldn't read and then like a really witty quip on top of it. Right. And now this is just something I feel like I've been tracking. It does not feel like when people disagree, they expect the people they're disagreeing with to be reading them. They're not expecting to have like a five-piece back and forth. Right. <laughs> they're expecting to um, – you know, get their sort of likes and retweets and whatever it right. might be, and and that 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 does feel to me less healthy. And and again, I say this by the way, again being part of it, not outside of it,
1: not yeah, look, not it, not like I am. I son. follow you. You're not bad. And it's oh, but it's you very you you're fine you're fine us <laughs> right but it's because I don't participate yeah a lot I of the time. I got it I got it and and but the key the the key to this is knowledge because knowledge is power on this if basically you're not intending to have a back and forth a real disagreement with somebody then then you're going to dismiss that person if you're going to react at all you'll dismiss and dismissal per se is contemptuous by the way when you go back to even a vigorous fisking of the blogosphere. You know, this like- I've, Such it, a gross, it's a vigorous fisking it's, in I the know, blogosphere. <laughs> I know, it's awful. But, you know, even when it was uncivil, in a way, there, there's nothing that says that we have to be civil when we disagree. That's not the point either. But contempt and civility, it's, it's interesting right now. When people are trying to adjudicate the current political climate and they're complaining a lot about civility. that That's beside the point. I mean, civility is fine if you're basically trying to have everybody get along and you're trying to have a certain kind of productivity in the workforce. But civility shouldn't be the goal either. I mean, that that's not how competition is supposed to work. I mean, Pepsi and Coke are not civil to each other, but they should be following certain moral norms and rules of the road legally. And, and so we we have to figure out how we should talk to each other, not worrying about civility so much, but worrying about the ways where we don't express contempt And as such, we can disagree with each other. We can have a competition of ideas. Well, let's talk about civility because I think
2: that somebody fairly listening to this conversation in this context will hear it as a conversation about civility. So something you're saying there is that anger and contempt can have equal levels of civility and incivility it's about the productivity of the engagement right whether or not you're actually trying to have an interaction with somebody on a real level but it doesn't have to be a civil interaction is that is that what i'm hearing from yeah, you
1: that's right because civility is a largely subjective construct i mean if you go to uh, you know minneapolis it's really different than if you're going to atlanta You know, if you go to an Italian family, it might be really different than if you go to a Southern Baptist family, you know, in in what they consider to be civil around the dining table. I mean, different cultures define civility in different ways. But everybody, everybody knows the difference between anger and contempt in their hearts, whether they can define it as such or not. You know when you're being treated with contempt and and there's no culture that says, you know, contempt is fine. You can treat me as if I'm utterly worthless, if I'm beneath any sort of disdain that you could possibly – there's there's no culture that accepts that. That's a natural law if there is such a thing in discourse.
2: I've been reading a lot of Martin Luther King Jr.'s books recently just for some other projects I'm working on. One of the things I really loathe in contemporary discourse is when King is brought up as a paragon of civility because one at the time, he was often attacked for being uncivil. That's you know, a letter from the Birmingham jail and all, all that. But also it was a very deep form of confrontation. But but to your point, one of the things I I was thinking about while listening to you is it was confrontation with the expectation of interaction, right? It was confrontation with the belief that you were trying to change minds. It was confrontation with the belief that people were redeemable and if they saw the monster in themselves or the monster in their peers, they would change. And. I am interested in this idea on on limiting the difference between when have we decided the people we are dealing with are beyond saving versus when is our actual effort to try to change their minds. Yeah. You know, then there's this other question of how open do we believe our mind is to change? Right. Right. And how open in different contexts should it be? But this idea that civility is a is a defining line. Civility seems to me to be a very weaponized concept.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean basically when you don't want to compete, then you start talking a whole lot about civility. And and, and it's basically vigorous competition is always going to be considered to be uncivil. This is not violating the law or even moral norms. It's just not being nice. And so, you know, niceness is not what you're trying to do in a capitalist economy or in a, in a contested democratic election. And it shouldn't be what we're trying to do in the competition of ideas either. However, you pass the line of actually being able to have a competition of ideas when you express contempt. Why? Why? Competition of ideas means trying to win the competition. Contempt means you're trying to shut it down. You know, that's basically the Red Sox blowing up the Yankees bus on the way to the game. That's not competing. That's not competing. That's the kind of the the, the, the rhetorical cronyism. It's just some way of, of not having to compete. So— I'm, I'm not a fan of civility. I don't mind it. There are certain times when I use it, certainly, but it's not my goal. However, I think that we have to declare a war on contempt if we're going to make any kind of progress in this country politically and in the competition of ideas. So tell me about this this project you've been working on around disagreeing better. So
2: I, I think at this point, if I ask you, how are we disagreeing poorly? You're going to say that we're disagreeing with too much contempt. But are there other dimensions to your diagnosis of what has gone wrong with an American disagreement than contempt?
1: Yeah. So contempt is when we interact with each other poorly. But one of the biggest problems that we have in in, in having a conversation nationally about big issues, stuff that really matters a lot (laughs) is that we don't actually have conversations with each other effectively. We have f- fake conversations where we talk to people who agree with us acting as if we were talking to people who disagree with us. We have conversations only with people in our own community saying, "Yeah, the other side is this, the other side is that," and ghettoize ourselves. This is really bad practice. It's also it's intellectually a very weak practice that we've gotten in- into. And and part of this is that we have a, you know, decades long coming apart process. My colleague at AEI, uh, Charles Murray, and 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 also Robert Putnam at Harvard, and a lot of other people have written important books about how society has literally physically come apart as people are not living together. But then the 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 kind of natural manifestation of this ideologically is that we've found technological ways to make sure that we don't even have to talk to each or listen to anybody else's point of view that doesn't agree with our own. The Onion, which I'm sure you're a faithful reader, I certainly am. Um, they has they have a, a funny version of a late-night talk show called You're Right. <laughs> it's basically you watch that show and all they do the whole time is tell you how virtuous and how smart you are and how right you are on every particular topic. Well, that's a that's another big threat to our competition of ideas. I mean, it's basically just leads to to mediocrity and kind of a soft society in which none of our ideas are ever exposed to. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was an academic for a long time, and when you're a, when you're a center right, a moderate conservative as I am on a college campus, you find you always have to defend your points of view, and it's like, why is it so easy to win arguments? It's not because my colleagues are they're super intelligent, they're really really smart. And the answer is that since undergraduate, all the way through graduate school, and and in the academy, frequently people don't have to defend their their center left point of view or their progressive point of view. It just makes you weak. So what makes you confident this is worse than
2: it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago versus
1: because of social media, because of nationalized cable news, more visible? Um, I'm sort of – I'm both pessimistic and optimistic. The reason I'm pessimistic is I see the data. And the data I like to look at as a social scientist are on feeling thermometers that, you know, the relationships people have with each other. And you find that, that relationships are breaking down. Um, about 20% of Americans have ended a close friendship or relationship with a family member because of ideology, because of political views. And that's up. I mean, we've been looking at that for a long time. That's much, much higher than it's ever been. You find that people are avoiding those who disagree with them. And in feeling thermometers, which is this like zero to 100 scale where zero is Saddam who's. Saying in hundred is Santa Claus, you find that just the the general group of people who disagree with you are falling like a rock and feeling thermometers, and you know we we have data going back decades on this, and it's just worse than it's been before. So it's in, I think it's a, a pretty compelling argument that we're in we're in trouble. That's why I'm pessimistic. What was the optimistic part? <laughs> the optimistic part <laughs> is that when you have a crisis like this, it's it's by nature an opportunity. When things are kind of chugging along and and we're talking about ideas, kind of and. We sort of are willing to listen to each other. It's it's hard to jar people into paying attention. I mean you and I wouldn't have been talking about the competition of ideas per se five or ten years ago or certainly not 15 or 20 years ago. And it's important that we do that because it's a moment when we need this opportunity to improve things.
2: So one of the things – I'm working on this book project about political identity and, and, and the way that's changed over 50 or 60 years and it's very related to this. Right, by the way, how, how far along is your book? Um, there's a joke I think I might have used on the show before that you're only ever 10% or 90% of the way through a book. So I'm 10%. <laughs> 10%,
1: right. Are you <laughs> late I'm, yet?
2: Oh, I'm years and years. I mean I signed this book contract at the Washington Post.
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, so Who's your publisher? Uh, Simon & Schuster. Good, good publisher. So the, the, <laughs> the key thing to keep in mind for our listeners who are not in the, the throes of a book, which Ezra and I are kind of all the time, is that it's, it's like the, there's an, a famous old book called On Death and Dying – by a psychologist mm-hmm. named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And it says you have to pass through these phases, like negotiation and anger when you learn you're going to die. And finally, acceptance is the last mm-hmm. one, right? That's like writing a book. So what, what's what uh, are you at the negotiating phase? Uh, or are you at the anger phase? No, I'm actually – I'm, I'm finally
2: focused on and really enjoying it. But I will say that one of the hard things is my wife, Annie Lowry – Signed a contract to do a book like a year and a half ago, got the book in on deadline. The book comes out. It will be out by the time probably this conversation comes out on July 10th. It's called Give People Money, but it has been – it's been very – That's um, a book about
1: the universal basic income, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. She's done really important work on that.
2: Everybody should get it. But it's been very (laughs) uh, humbling to see somebody – Actually, complete a book in my own household while I was not yeah, completing yeah. So a book. So does she?
1: Does she roll her eyes when she talks about your book, or treat you with contempt? A lot of contempt. Yes. Um. <laughs> it's 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 a very, careful you know, with she's, that. She's a
2: great you no. Know, she's a great, a great uh, support on all this. But the the thing I want to go back to here is that within my book project, one of the things that I have really become persuaded by, because the data is very very clear, is we have a tendency because we've had the same labels on our political system for a very long time to assume that the component parts of a political system have held steady and its are reactions, interactions that have changed. So we say um, the way people are reacting you know, to, to folks of a different political opinion, it's with more contempt or they're shaving off more relationships or you – know, you you'll often hear people complain that there's more political discrimination in who people marry than there was 40, 50 years ago. It went from something like 4 or 5 percent of the population. So they'd be upset if their son or daughter married a member of the other party and now 40. it's something like 25, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Hi. So that sounds really bad. On the other hand, what has happened in this period of time is that the label Republican and Democrat, how much social sorting, how much difference those labels encode, have really changed. So you used to have liberal republicans, um, you used to have conservative democrats. The parties were less sorted than they are today by race, by ideology, by geography, by religion, by marital status, by anything you can imagine. And so it really was the case that if you were a democrat talking to or about a republican or republicans that how threatening the republican party was to your interests, how different republicans were from you was a lot smaller and something I struggle with then. Is a question of whether or not the differences in our social politics for for lack of a better term reflect problems in the way we're relating to each other or they reflect a rational reaction to the idea that if now you're – when you're talking about republicans and democrats, you're now talking about two tribes that have moved much further apart
1: and are like just literally are more different from each other. Mm, That's a very good point. Um, I can't wait to read your book. When Me neither. The, the, <laughs> your, your editor can't wait to read your book too, right? Can we,
2: can we stay on topic here, <laughs> Arthur?
1: So, yeah, I realize I'm just adding to your pain. That's a very interesting point and I sometimes contemplate the extent to which just the labeling differences have changed. I do believe there is a real thing here going on however and, and the reason is because of a, the study we talked about a little bit earlier about how polarization, how political polarization increases, how populism increases, which is a inherently a way of expressing ideas in us versus them terms. And, and what you find is that you get more us versus them, more outsiders versus insiders, more bonding social capital versus bridging social capital in times of, of unequal economic rewards where people feel like they've kind of gotten hammered and they're not – and identity politics, by the way, that increases as well is one of the things that we see. So I think that particularly in the wake of the financial crisis, you see both political parties and, and both, I say, political tribes, left versus right – more in the us versus them mode and thinking of the them in much more negative terms than we've seen before. True. It's absolutely true that that, that what it means to be a Democrat changes over the years, of course. You'd hope it would. You'd hope it would be a relatively fluid concept as opposed to something over a thousand years means exactly the same thing. on the other hand, people who don't see things the way that we do, that that's where you actually find uh, in the data the polarization has increased, the populism has exacerbated it, the parties are rewarding it, and that people are acting in accordance with that. And I think that's a crisis. That's something that we have to, and again, the contempt is the rhetorical part of that that's feeding into it. But And each one of us can be an agent in weakening that algorithm.
2: One of the things you said in there is that Particularly as society stratifies economically, you are going to have rises in this kind of populism in 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 what I would call here us versus them populism, uh, which is which is the classic form. But I, I think people use populism in America to talk about a lot of different things, and I don't want to group them all under the same. And yet, here's where I struggle in this conversation. Going back to the idea that the parties have in many ways become much more different than each other, that. The stakes of politics are very high Are they go all the way up to life and death. But just talking about economically, they drive – are people going to get health insurance from the government, right? The Republican Party has spent years trying to, to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And to Republicans, Democrats have spent years trying to take over the American healthcare system with uh, having the government take it over. Similarly, um, Donald Trump just passed a, a tax plan that to me is an unbelievable accelerant of inequality, a genuinely to me immoral accelerant of inequality. But obviously there are a lot of folks on the Republican side who believe it's a, a valid plan. and. Within that, one of the, the questions is that if you believe the stakes are this high, right, the, the policy stakes are so high that getting the policy wrong might begin tearing asunder some of the fabric of politics, it is hard within that then to operate within the levels of sort of normal engagement that people prize. And maybe another and a simpler way of putting this idea because I'm, I'm thinking through it sort of on the fly here is – there is always a choice in American politics that people are facing all the time, in all politics anywhere, which is, is this a sort of normal, sort of within the rules of the game kind of collision, right? Where we should just be, you know, maybe you win, maybe you lose, but but you accept it either way? Or are we facing these sort of apocal, apocalyptic even stakes? Mm. And one of, the thing I, one of the things I see more often now is people seeing the stakes as irreversible Potentially for the system or for the country, almost apocalyptic. And so, any means from emotional all the way up to procedural, like, you know, breaching the debt ceiling or something, any means become valid. Versus if you sort of have the idea that you win some, you lose some, it's all politics as normal. Well, then you're able to stay much more within the boundaries of, yeah, we're upset at each other today, but we're going to work together tomorrow. Yeah. And so there's something here about the stakes that I think that we don't talk about well, whether the stakes really have gotten high in a way that have changed things because of how different the parties are and how different what they believe is, or whether or not that's just a perception we have and, hmm. and to act like that
1: is a mistake. No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's actually a very beautiful question in its way because what we're talking about is... Is this – it's kind of an end times question. You yes. Know? It's funny. And uh, I've thought about that. You know, there are these moments when I'm feeling sort of apocalyptic. And I'm thinking like, oh, man, this really, really matters. This is – it's like the mid-19th century or something. And then I go – I'm on the road a lot. I do 175 speeches a year, which is – Sounds really awful. It's awesome. I love it. It's just – I love it. There's not that it's it's, just because you and your wife fight every day? <laughs> she goes as much as she can with me, but um she's usually too busy. But, you know, like for, for me, if I've got, you know, 800 people waiting to hear me in Tulsa tonight and I'm going to Dulles Airport, I'm actually – super pumped because I can't wait to talk to those people. I just – I'm so happy about it. I don't care if it's a left-wing audience or a right-wing audience or a no-wing audience. I'm just – I guess you can figure it out in Tulsa. But, you know, it's just – it's a beautiful thing being able to talk to all these people. But here's the key point. When I'm feeling kind of apocalyptic about political polarization in America and then I go to America, I find that the stakes are almost always weirdly lower. I mean, we tend to think that if you go to Waco, Texas or you know, Kansas or Chicago or someplace that you're going to get these these enclaves of people who all believe in the same way and they pump everything up into being a really big deal. But we're the ones here in d c who have our dresses over our heads all the time. I mean, it's just we think everything is the end times. and And when I think back on it, you know i've been I've been president of Aei for during three presidencies now. I mean, a little tiny stub of W and then all of Obama and now Trump. And every election, including the off-year elections, including the minor elections, is always the most important election of our lifetime. And we kind we of calm down, man. I mean it's just it's just the stakes aren't as high as we think they are. And so I've got – actually I've got a piece of advice for people who are listening to us. And, and this, I'm going to prove to everybody listening to us, including you and me, that the stakes are actually lower than we think they are. And here's a piece of advice. It's called a politics cleanse it's a patented thing i'm coming up with right it's kind of like becoming a ideological vegan for a couple of weeks just 2 weeks i mean it's not the communists or the fascists or whatever won't take over during that time it's okay Right. and do yourself a favor, and don't listen to anything about politics, and don't read anything about politics, and don't have any conversations about politics. By the way, but like a vegan, people think you're wacky, but you can be, you know, superior to them, which is right. Awesome I'm a too. vegan. Me too. Which is how? So, yeah, totally. So I, you know, I get it. So, <laughs> and, and and, but at the end of two weeks, if you actually do this, it's hard. But if you actually do this, you're going to come back and you're going to find a bunch of things. You're going to find that the, the world has gone on. Like it's like a Mexican soap opera. You pick it up two weeks later and it, nothing's actually changed. The second thing that you're going to find is that you were used by powerful people for their profit – that's actually what's going on. People are trying to whip you up and get you into a frenzy and make you angry all the time and contemptuous all the time for their profit. There's a minority of the population that's super into this and there are people in the outrage industrial complex that are making tons of money and getting powerful and famous. And they, they, they feed on your brainwaves. And the third thing you're going to find out is that you're wasting tons of time that you could have been spending cultivating relationships of love in your life. And that should be the true source of your uh, sustenance. So let me try to argue this one both ways because I'm –
2: (laughs) I Because we're in the competition of ideas, so you can argue it both ways. (laughs) Um, Nobody said it was a two-sided competition. So on the (laughs) one hand, one way to hear that is that – sure, that's true, but there's a, a deep privilege associated with it I'll, I'll use myself as an example I am not at risk of deportation True. right I can step back from politics for a couple of weeks I'm not at risk of losing my health care I'm not you know I'm I'm in pretty good shape so I can step back from politics for a couple of weeks and certainly from the news cycle for a little while and calm down and realize as you say that a, a lot of what's going on is algorithmic or cable news or politicians Russian and, Twitter bots exactly or whatever. trying to get me very upset and, and that it's good to calm down. And that is both a true thing about me and potentially a fake thing about politics. On the other hand, I do think that part of the question here is about baseline because the stakes of politics have always been life and death, because the stakes of politics have always been, particularly for some people, decisive in the future of their lives. I mean, It's why I've devoted so much of my life to to trying to make politics what I see as a little bit better. There's something about this period that feels different, even though it isn't. Um, uh, one of the examples I do use here is deportations. Um, something that my colleague Dara Lind, who who covers this stuff very closely, will say is that the high watermark of deportations, you know, roughly was early Obama years. Um, it went down in the back half, but. Donald Trump has brought it back up again, but it's something we've never seen before. But right. it feels because of the way it's being constructed, because of the way it's
1: being talked about. Well, and because the Obama of, administration didn't talk about it, and, then, and the and they were trying to the Trump use it Administration, administration a, celebrates it, and
2: the right. Obama administration wanted to use that as leverage to to create a more humane reform of the immigration system. I'm not. I don't want to create too much parody. The, the thing I'm trying to get at here is that the.
1: By the way, you're just being a fair broker. Right, it's, the, the, it's, You're not creating parity. You're being a fair broker. Right, the, the argument
2: on the other side of this is that there's something a lot of us feel that this period is uniquely um, high stakes, uniquely apocalyptic, uniquely dangerous. And I do worry that that relies on a, a mixture of Donald Trump pursuing a strategy of constantly freaking everyone out, right? Donald Trump sort of like sounding an alarm every morning when he turns on Twitter, but also a nostalgia for the past, Including, by the way, for things like George W. Bush, who I think – and this is my politics – who I think did a lot more damage than Donald Trump has actually done so far despite the fact that now there's a sort of nostalgia around him. Wow. When
1: you come on my podcast, we're going to have to – we're we should have talk to about really that. pull that apart because I, I got to hear more about that. Well,
2: that's – it's a foreign policy judgment.
1: Uh, I got it. There is
2: no doubt in my mind, uh, not a shadow of a doubt, that George W. Bush and the people who worked for him – were more moral, more compassionate, more the, – the, the way they thought of themselves and their role in the world. In, in terms of who do I feel contempt for versus who don't I, I had a much easier time dealing with the Bush administration. Right. But in part because they're more effective. In, in places where I really disagreed with them.
1: On foreign policy in particular. Particularly on and foreign policy. The fact is that the Trump administration foreign policy has been largely a continuation of the Obama foreign policy for all intents Mixed and with purposes. with a huge amount of chaos. Well, you know, I got it. But we're yeah. talking about the, the the outcome looks an awful lot like a continuation of the Obama foreign policy. So if you like Obama foreign policy, better. You and all the people listening to us who really liked Obama, they should be kind of liking Trump's foreign policy because for all intents and purposes, it's the same. I don't think that's true and I'll I'll, I'll say here's why. I think
2: that is looking at foreign policy too much as war policy and it is true that Donald Trump has not yet started a, a new war. I do think if you care a lot about diplomacy and multilateral institutions, that the way Donald Trump is treating traditional alliances and international institutions that we have been part of and leaders in it's so substantially different and its long-term effects could be big enough that I do see it as a more decisive break than you do. But it is a less decisive break – and I, I, I do agree with this – than, say, starting an Iraq and Afghanistan war. Yeah, right? for sure. And, and, and so there is a way in which Donald Trump just has not done as much. Mm. And so if you believe those wars are very destructive in the way they're conducted
1: as I do – um, but you, let's get back to your yeah. main your main point. It was the main point is really interesting. The, let's, let's it's a podcast. The we, we can thing. just leave points. <laughs> yeah, Leave right. points
2: littered on the ground.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but we got to get back to the foreign policy thing at some point. But sure. let's get back to the one thing that you predicated the whole. If we go back seven minutes or something, that it, there's a kind of a privilege in being able yes. to not pay attention. Right. Yes. It's a, it's you're lucky to not be able to pay attention. I hate using the privilege language because it's just so college campusy at this point, you know, identity politics and all of a sudden, you know, check your privilege and all that stuff. But I get your point. I get your point. Here's here and, and so let, let's I would let's, say that a lot of people who are
2: concerned I uh, I think privilege is an interesting idea where a lot of people who are made uncomfortable by the idea have begun treating the idea with contempt. I ah. just want to put a little flag on that. Oh, wow. That I think there's an immune system developing around certain ideas. Privilege right. is one. Yeah, yeah. Where instead of arguing with it, it's like, eh, it's a ridiculous college campusing. I, uh-huh. So I just wanted
1: to well, You to, think to I, treated, I treat it with contempt. I think you treated it with oh, a bit of contempt. No, no. I think it was anger. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, but, but let's, so let's think about that for a second, that there's – you're kind of lucky if you don't have to deal with the politics. Right. OK. Here's the, the reason that we should still do a politics cleanse. It's important to be able to figure out what actually is turned up to 10 and what isn't. See, what's going on right now is that people are using – people in media and people in politics are using every single person listening to this podcast – they're basically saying everything that I am talking about right now is equally important as what's going on at the border. That's what's going on in foreign policy as the tax policy. Those are big things. Those are actually big things right now. But, you know, there's that famous – that probably the most famous scene in that movie Spinal Tap where, you know, the guitar player has this – has an amplifier that goes up to 11. And he's – why does it go up to 11? Because it's louder. It's like everything is at 11 all the time. Now, you need to be able to distinguish. I talk to people all the, all the time who can't distinguish between what's actually noise, what's of the moment, what's today's like bit of jetsam going down the river and what actually is a big deal. And so being able to distinguish is actually part of the discrimination on these things is part of what it means to be a, a person who's truly engaged. So I, th- I think this is true. So one, I actually for the record, I endorse the
2: idea of the politics cleanse, but but let me take it further because this is a conversation I have when I do my speaking, which I do a lot less of than you, but but I get a version of this question a lot and and, and what I always tell people is this. So there was – now is probably eight months ago, but there was a New York Times piece about a guy who had just receded from hearing about politics entirely. Do you remember this? Yeah, This piece do, got yeah. – it, it went very – it was a very – there was a big like two-minute hate about it on the internet. But he was someone who had just decided after Donald Trump got elected that he was never going to hear anything about it at all and had built this very unusual life such that he just never heard a word. Not like was trying to read less news, but didn't even know that things were going on. But at the end, one of the things it discussed was that he had not just receded. What he had also decided to do is focus his time and money on restoring, I believe it was a wetland near where he lived. And I always thought that piece of that article got underplayed and I think there's some real wisdom there. I I, I try to tell people uh, pretty frequently that one of the questions worth asking yourself is where can you do some good? Where are you doing good? Are you just being spun up and made to feel angry or are you acting? Our level of emotional engagement in national politics versus our levels of emotional engagement for most people in state
1: and local politics compared to how much more effect most of us can have <laughs> totally. in state and local totally. politics is very disproportionate. Totally. Look, it's because it's entertainment. And I was in Seattle, my hometown, and right after the election in 2016. I was talking to somebody and they were really, really wound around the axle about Donald Trump. I said, well, who won the school board election for superintendent of Seattle Public Schools? And they're like, I don't know. Well – that's actually important to your day-to-day lifestyle, state and local stuff. I mean the, the things that are going to affect your kids, that, that's actually not – not very much of that is going to be affected by the Supreme Court. Not very much of that is going to be affected by the US Congress or the, the current occupant of the White House. I, I understand it's less interesting. It's actually kind of boring and there's not a reality show that's wrapped up in it. Right now— Well, our identities are less wrapped up in it. In, indeed. Unusually. And, But—and and, let's—one more point that's kind of on the politics cleanse line. If your identity is wrapped up in your—in in how you see things politically, you need a better identity. I mean your identity should be who you are as a person and who you love and who your relationships are and the things that you believe and your transcendental notion of what's bigger than you. If it's basically if your identity is Democrat meh, or Republican, you need a richer set of relationships and you need a richer set of interests. But people have a lot of identities. I
2: mean I, th- this is something where I think the the conversation over identity politics, which I always wish people would see more clearly and realize that the core political identities are not – They're not racial. They're not gender. They're they're party, like our most important political identities. All politics is identity politics because so much of American politics is party politics first and foremost. But that's one identity people have and they have that identity to your point. When they're spun up, when politicians and media give them reasons to activate that identity. But at other times, their identities are a Cubs fan or their identities are a father or a mother or a daughter or a resident of Tulsa or whatever it might be. I mean one of the things I've begun to think about doing this work on political identity is that – on the one hand, the bad news is our identities are so much more powerful and so much more easily activated than people recognize. But the good news, to the extent there is any good news, is we have a lot of them. The choice is not whether or not you can act from a place of identity, but whether or not you can choose which identities are being foregrounded and whether or not also leaders and media and, and politicians and other, and other folks are are making responsible decisions about which
1: identities to activate and, and how to activate them. Yeah, I understand that. And one of the things that we do see is that political identities have become more salient, that ideological identities have become more salient. And part of that is because you can amplify them and you can get input from other people much more easily in the in the, in the era of social media. But it's also worth pointing out that particularly when there's a, a zero-sum mentality across society, that identity per se gets more important. I mean identities, and, and and here's a let me make a quick appeal against identity and for something that's better, which is stories. It sounds like a like a distinction without a difference, but the truth is that identity is how you're different than others. Stories are basically how you're the same as others. Stories bond you to other people. Identities distinguish you from. Now we have identities. We just do. I mean, you know, Ezra is a Jewish white man in his 30s. These are identities. I mean, you're not. You can't. You can't wipe them out without sort of extreme means. That's. Fine, that's normal as far as it goes. But what you choose to emphasize can either bond you to others or distinguish you from others. Both are appropriate at different times. I just think that we've gone too far toward the distinction and too far away from the bonding. You know, the stories of commonality are so uplifting. It's amazing. I saw this – maybe you saw this too. I saw this um, this video on YouTube – uh, of a rally from September of 2017 out here in the mall in Washington DC and there was a, a rally uh, called the mother of all rallies Trump unification something it was like bikers for Trump and it was the whole it was like a huge multi-day deal and it got crashed by Black Lives Matter greater New York I mean they came in off the periphery and and like fists raised in the air and you know like people take out their phones like everybody's an airsoft videographer at this point cuz they want to see conflict and what happened is just mind-blowing. I mean, you got to watch this thing. I, I talk about it actually on my on this new Vox podcast, as a matter of fact, because it makes this point of identity versus story so well that this guy, his name is Hawk Newsome. He's the head of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York. He's a huge guy. He's like six, seven, and, and he's got a deep voice and his fist is in the air. And the guy who's running the Trump rally, he says – I'm going to give you two minutes on this, on this microphone, two minutes on this stage. And Hawk Newsom gets up there and he says, you know what I am? I'm an American. <laughs> and, and he said, I'm a Christian right? To the largely Christian crowd. And within two minutes, they were cheering for him, not because he was doing his identity politics, but because he was doing his story of how he was the same. The guy is great. He's my friend now. I actually, I've, I've gotten to know him. He's a completely interesting and good guy. He naturally wants to bond with you. How did you get to know him? I got to know him because I wrote about him in the New York Times and I called him and I asked him to come to Washington, visit AEI and come on my podcast and be part of my book this new book that I've got coming out because I want to know him better. I heard him. I think what an unbelievable talent for solidarity this guy has. He's great.
2: So I spent some time recently with Eric Garcetti, who's uh, the mayor of Los Angeles, and he makes a point that's similar to this, which is that in an era when we have a lot of identity getting activated and you're not going to be able to get away from that that being able to tell unifying stories becomes more important. He's yep. speaking for politicians here, yep. I think.
1: He's an v- incredibly
2: gifted politician. Very, very gifted politician. But, Could be a president at but, some point. Well, he'll, he'll be running in 2020, so yep. we'll see. I, I, think, I think he'll be yep. running in 2020. He's not uh, certainly not announced, but heavily rumored. And I sort of like the new breed of politicians who who have stopped denying when they're thinking about I running know. for president. I, I find I find like the end of that dance to be hey, nice. Ezra, have you denied that you're going to be running in 2020? <laughs> my, my denials are Sherman-esque. Uh, but uh, as I said, if you don't love managing 120 people, you're not going to like run in the federal government. But he – I do think there's something to to his point. I mean, his critique of Democrats oftentimes is that Democrats have – they've gotten very good at talking about identity, which he thinks is important. But they've lost the ability to tell national stories. stories. Right. And I, I don't think it's all Democrats. I think Obama was very good at merging those two things and I think Hillary Clinton wasn't. And I do think that's a little
1: bit of a story of part of where the the Democratic Party is finding itself right now. It was that. And there was also the healthy dose of contempt. I mean the the moment that you look at the data that things really started going south, notwithstanding all the emails and the Comey and all that stuff, was when she said that deplorables and irredeemables comment – because that was a classic moment of contempt. Romney's fatal error was the 47% comment, which looked dismissive. It was a moment of contempt. Although the flip of that is that
2: Donald Trump is a politician almost entirely powered by contempt. Yeah, yeah, for right? sure. Which I mean, is it's, – and it's, it's an amazing thing to me and I, I do think it's a bad thing for politics. and that He models a form of politics that's based on contempt. Sad, you know, like crooked – like the, even the, the names about people, they're immutable. It's, yeah, you know, intrinsic in characteristics. That's pure contempt. Exactly so right. that's a good bridge to, I asked you about other dimensions and the ways we disagree poorly. What are some of the other things you've learned or come to believe about disagreeing
1: well, aside from just trying to avoid contempt? So I'll tell you one thing that has really had a huge impact on me, Um, as you and I have discussed. And and, and by the way, when we talk about how the salience of politics and policy and all that stuff, you and I are the wonkiest guys in DC, maybe. And well, I don't know about that, but we also disagree on most yeah. policies. Yeah, well I I bet we'd agree on most policies. I think that we could find a lot of stuff that we disagree on, but we agree on most policies because if you compare the United States to other countries. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we believe in the fundamental tenets of democratic capitalism and we disagree on the characteristics for its manifestation, the stuff at the margins, which is great, by the way. But when you and I get together personally like for lunch, most of our conversation is about love and solidarity and relationships and spirituality, which means that we are not defined by these identities that we've got here. And that's really, really important thing to keep in mind. And that's something— We're going to have a very strange idea of our lunches off of that description. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Anybody who wants to join us, uh, (laughs) you need to make a contribution to the American Enterprise Institute. Anyway, one of the key things that's really influenced my thinking a lot about how to disagree in terms of policy actually comes from the world of spirituality. I'm, I'm quite close with the Dalai Lama. I see him every year. Well, I mean, aren't we all? Yeah. Well, it's a weird thing because you wouldn't think that the guy who's the president of AEI would. So it's an unusual relationship. He's a very open person. So it's not as if, you know, I'm so special. He loves people. Um, And I I go to see him at his home in Dharamsala in the Himalayan foothills in India. And he's come to the United States and and been at AEI many times. It's a phenomenal relationship. And I was working on this thing about contempt. I asked him because I was in Dharamsala and we were shooting this film that's coming out. He's in it. And I said, just like between cuts, I said, Your Holiness, what should I do when I feel contempt, <laughs> right? I mean, it's because it's a habit, right? When you're trying to quit smoking, every time you feel like smoking a cigarette, you don't just say, I won't do it. You have to do something else. You have to put something else in its place. There's a good brain science on this. A guy named Charles Duhigg has written this great book, The Power of Habit, and he talks about this. And so like every time you want to smoke, then you just know, drink a beer, for example. That's a... I'm not sure that's specifically the one I would choose, but yeah. Okay, sure. well there you are. So if, if you have an
2: addictive personality, don't go straight <laughs> to right. the
1: alcohol. Uh, okay, maybe not. Okay, so so I asked your holiness, when I feel contempt, what should I do? And he said, express warm-heartedness. And I thought, you know, you got anything else? Because that's you know seems like pretty weak, weak uh, advice. And then I thought about it. You know, he's a tough hombre. I mean, he was kicked out of his country in exile at the you know the the end of a rifle. And took his people people to be gone and forgotten and poor forever. I mean the the, the communist Chinese were just uh, utterly thuggish in the way they kicked out the Tibetans and the way the Tibetans have been treated subsequently. And he starts every day praying for the Chinese leaders. Not that they'll give him back his homeland but they'll have better, happier lives. Why? Because he wants to practice warmheartedness in the face of contempt. When I feel contempt, when I face contempt, when I see contempt, then use it as an opportunity to practice something that's orthogonal to the cognition that you're experiencing in that moment. And I said, huh. And he gave me a bunch of, of ways to do this. I mean what you should think of and he gave me some practices and, and, and I've tried to develop this. But the bottom line is when you're on Twitter and somebody expresses contempt to you and, and it will be today, Ezra, because you're famous and, and somebody's going to say something contemptuous. Answer with warm hearted – not with agreement. Answer with warm heartedness. And, and in so doing, you change the relationship and, and most importantly, you change your heart. So I've gotten two uh, recent practices that I think you'll be interested in um, that, that are maybe
2: related to this. One is that I, the last thing I want to do is argue with the
1: Dalai Lama about how to respond, <laughs> respond to contempt. But I- Didn't mean to get out the big guns there. No,
2: right. I, I've always found those kinds of practices too hard for me. It's too big of a- jump from being angry to being um, warm-hearted. I went to Telsahara recently, which is the first time I've ever been at a Zen monastery, and it mm-hmm. was a really, really remarkable experience. But there was a monk there who, who talked about a practice uh, that has really been very useful for me, which is that he wasn't necessarily talking about contempt, but I use it in that kind of context quite a bit, which is when you find yourself deep in a story, particularly an angry story, to just attach the mental note, is that so? And it comes from a, a famous Zen story uh, where a monk was in a town and and he was accused of, of fathering uh, the, the, the child of the fishmonger's daughter or something. And um, you know when all the angry townspeople came and they gave him the baby and they said, you know, you're you're terrible, you've you've betrayed us. He just said, "Is that so?" Six months later, the woman confesses it was not the monk; it was the shopkeeper, or whoever. They come back, they say to the monk, You're a holy man, you've taken this child, you know, you you didn't get angry at us. And he just says, Is that so? Instead of having to go all the way to the other side, uh, you know, that sort of like wrenching mindfulness practice of, you know, you know, you're thinking now, you've got to start, just like kind of because maybe it is so. Maybe the way you feel is a reasonable way to feel. Maybe the thing you're worried about is a, a thing that's actually gonna happen. But also maybe not. <laughs> hmm. And for some reason, that's
1: really worked for me. Um, it, 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 it's very light well, it's, uh, in the way a lot of things are heavy. Well, what you're doing is, and, and this is classic Buddhist practice, is that you're stepping back from the attachment of your feeling to your particular feeling right. at that moment. And, and detachment is an act of will. It's a very beautiful, very powerful act of will. The ultimate act of detachment from your contempt is the expression of the opposite cognition. Which is the warm-heartedness. But you can basically just detach from it and and, and look at it from the outside. So the, the, you know, the, the both the Zen Buddhist and the Tibetan Buddhists will talk about the practice of observing your your sentiments. And so you're actually feeling something. And at that moment, you have to practice backing up from that feeling and observing yourself, feeling that thing. That's when you say, Is that so? That's what you're doing. That's effectively what you're doing. You're you're examining what you feel. And so you should—you're basically not saying, is that so—is that so I'm the father of that child? You are just like, is that so I'm being accused of being the father of the child? Is that so I'm feeling anxious and angry and frustrated about being accused of being the father of the fishmonger's child, daughter's child? It's, it's, it's basically levels of detachment that you feel and, and what you think that you can master. But here's the key thing. Don't be owned by the contempt because when you're owned by the contempt, you don't have control. Someone else, something else has control over you. And that's inherently problematic. So what are, other, what are other things you've learned in this space? So we've talked about stories versus identity. We've talked about expressing compassion, kindness, and warmheartedness. We've talked about contempt versus anger. It's also important to keep in mind, and, and this is something we touched on a little bit earlier, that competition is a good thing. <laughs> and we should be working for competition more. And and it's interesting because we think that, that, that killing each other all the time is a form of competition. That's not. That's a form of shutting down competition. Com- real competition, whether it's in politics, which we love in democracy, or in capitalism, which most people listening to us, they understand that unbridled, it's unproductive, but inherently it's a good thing, that these things have two characteristics about them. Competition has two characteristics. Number one, it has rules of the road. The rules of the road are either set by social convention or by law. In the case of the Federal Election Commission, that's how you run an election. Make sure it's it's, fa- it's free and fair. And in terms of competition, it's making sure there's no collusion, making sure there's no monopoly, making sure there's no price gouging, and all that stuff. So, the number one, there's rules of the road, and second, it's governed by basic morality. And that's in you know, and again, the idea that basic morality is totally subjective—that's wrong. We have objective ideas and criteria for basic morality within societies, and it's it's a good thing that that we should all celebrate. So that's the same thing when we're talking about ideas and, and even the politics that come out of the ideas, that we need to be competing. where There's rules of the road where we don't treat each other in particular ways and there's basic morality where we treat each other with a kind of a warm-hearted compassion. And if we do that, then then just have at it and that's one of the things I write about. So
2: one of the interesting things about that is can – the the warning you've given quite a bit in this discussion against contempt is a warning against a – kind of negative, unproductive engagement with others. The push for competition, because I I do think this is an important point, is a warning against a lack of serious engagement with others. When you were talking earlier about on your campus, the center-left professors who you found it very easy to argue down because they were not used to having their arguments examined or rebutted or were not used to hearing the arguments they disagreed with framed well. I do think that that's a, a useful practice. If you are very into the kinds of questions we discuss here and you find that in
1: your normal week, you never feel challenged, yeah. well, you're probably getting weaker, not stronger. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. And, and by the way, we face this not just on college campuses but at, at conservative think tanks. I run, a, I run a center-right, free enterprise-oriented think tank. We have a policy of never having an event where the other point of view is not represented by the best possible person literally one of our corporate policies. Why? Because you know, we don't want to be some sort of flaccid activist advocacy kind of place where the opposing points of view are caricatured. Our founding motto is that a competition of ideas is fundamental to a free society. What that says is that competition of ideas is the means and the free society is the end. If you believe that, then you have to engage in the competition of ideas, which means you've got to have a competitor out there. You don't want to see batting practice by the Yankees. You want to see a game with the Red Sox. Is the way that thing is supposed to go down, and I think that's very important for all of us to to want to get in the game. And to get in the game, you got to have somebody who's in the game competing with you. Very important. So, what is the podcast called? We didn't have to hire Sachi and Sachi to figure this one out. It's called the Arthur Brooks Show. The Arthur Brooks Show. Because <laughs> I, I I was going to call it ripped off here. Well, I was going to call it the Ezra Klein Show, but it turns out <laughs> it was taken by Vox. Yeah, it's a it's a shame. <laughs> and um, we're doing it through the Vox Podcast Network, and they're phenomenal. I mean, it's just. The production is so good. The people are so talented. We're doing it mostly out of the New York office. Um, It's going to sound a little bit like This American Life. It's got original score. It has very high production values. And uh, I think – People, it really doesn't really matter what your political values are. I think there'll be something to learn. And so every week it's
2: a show on a different facet. Season one is about this question of disagreement. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So every week it's a show exploring a different facet yeah. of the question. And so I have people
1: who disagree with their family members who come on. I have people who have worked really hard to have pers- close personal friendships not fall apart. And I have a, a, I'm a real studies show kind of guy. I mean, I suffered through a PhD, so everybody needs to suffer apparently. And so I have a lot of the the best. The Social psychologists, behavioral economists, people in the world who who deal with more productive disagreement, people who do clinical practice and bringing people together, are going to be on the on the show to talk about how to mend relationships, compete better, persuade, and ultimately to to love each other.
2: All right. And so the final question I always ask on this show is for three book recommendations, ah. which I think we told you about. But having had this conversation, I want to structure this one a little bit differently. What are three books you've recommend that you've read and would recommend that you
1: disagree with, at least in part? Hmm. Three books that I disagree with, at least in part. Well, that's a killer, Ezra, because I do read a lot of stuff. I have a tendency to – I mean I read a lot of policy books Mm -hmm. and that are in – because I have to for my work. But the things that I will really engage with, the reading that I'll really engage with, ultimately it's because I'm trying to – be morally improved by those types of things. So there will be books that I don't understand, and so I might agree with or, or might disagree with. So Let's le- say le- books you felt challenged by. Yeah, okay. That's, that, oh, that's I'll make better. make it a little bit easier. <clears throat> that's better. So I just came back to a book that I read the first time when I was 20, and I'm 54, okay? So this, it was a good amount of time that passed. And it's Zen and the Art of Archery. Which you've probably read. Have you read that book? I've not. Okay, So a lot of people have read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. That's based on this book, Zen and the Art of Archery by Eugene Herigl, who is a a German academic from the 40s. He wrote it in the 1920s. He went to Japan. He studied archery with a Zen master. He wanted to study Zen Buddhism. He said, sorry, you have to study a thing. So his wife studied flower arranging and he studied archery for eight years. And it just walks through his process of learning the truth of Zen Buddhism through archery. Extremely challenging book. So I I didn't understand a word of it at 20 and I understood about 15% of it at 54. And I'm planning to go back to it at 90 to see what I can come up with. But I have to say, it's a wonderful book that I recommend just simply to be challenged on a lot of the concepts that we're talking about here. Another book that I read, it's a book by an Australian journalist named Will Storr. And it's called The Unpersuadables. It basically walks through a whole bunch of communities of people that can't be persuaded by facts. So anti-vaxxers, and people who, who don't believe in evolution. And it's just communities like that where you're like, what? How can you think these things, right? And, and it's, very, it's very challenging, I have to say, because, you know, I wonder if I'm an unpersuadable in a lot of ways. So it challenged me personally to think about my own beliefs. I think it enriched me. Here's the key thing. As a policy guy, if I'm wrong, I should want to know first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's one of, by the way, it's one of the reasons I read your stuff and the reason that I follow you on Twitter is because when I'm, sometimes I think, huh, I think Ezra is more right than me on this. It's very important, but I wondered, am I an unpersuadable? I I also (laughs) often think that about me. (laughs) (laughs) And I bet you're just reading everything that comes out of the American Enterprise. (laughs) Institute. I read read a lot of AI stuff. I know you do. I know you do. I do. So that was another challenging book for me because it was challenging for me morally. And the last book that really challenged me a lot, um, I just finished, it's called The Consolations of Mortality. And it's a book uh, by a psychologist at the University of Toronto. And, um, He's taught—he's an atheist. I'm not. I'm a Catholic and I'm a practicing Catholic at this. So the consolation of mortality for a Catholic like me, easy. It's an easy <laughs> question. It's like a one-word answer. But he's an atheist and he goes through the best philosophy, the best uh, psychological theory, the best work on technology and AI, the best work in Eastern religions about what the consolations of mortality might be. And it was a hugely challenging book for me as a believer. Arthur Brooks, thank you very much. Ezra Klein, great to be with you. All right. That
2: is The Ezra Klein Show. Thank you to Arthur Brooks for being here. You can subscribe to his new podcast at The Arthur Brooks Show. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, to Griffin Tanner for engineering. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we will be back next week.